Everyone has an idea, but is it right? Everyone seems to know what a Christian is, how the Christian life should look, and what kind of place the church should be. But are we even close? What if we could know? What if it looks different than we think? What if what God is building is more than a group of good people, but a community? Join us as we walk through the book of Philippians and see together a beautiful community. All right, kids ages 3 to pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship. The rest of you, I'd invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Philippians if you have one with you. Uh, If you don't, that's all right. The text is in your order of worship, which is this little thingy. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, there are a few on our back table. I'd love to give one of those to you. Uh, Take one. Maybe you don't feel comfortable grabbing one right now, but get it on your way out. Um, We've got a bunch. We've got plenty to give away, and we'd love to have uh, to give that to you. So that's our gift. Um, So we're back this week in Philippians, but it's been... It's been a few weeks with snow and with Friendship Sunday, so let me remind us if, if you haven't, if, if, you've, uh, if you're forgetting what this is all about. Okay? So, this letter to the Philippians was written by this early Christian leader by the name of Paul. You'd love Paul. Um, th- this was a dude who made it his life's goal to eradicate Christianity, violently if necessary. Uh, until the risen Jesus suddenly appeared to him and called Paul to himself. And sudden, all of a sudden, all of that zeal that went to eradicating the faith went to advancing it, promoting it, seeing it spread uh, throughout the Roman world. And so Paul started the church in Philippi. Philippi is a city in what is now Greece. Then it was Macedonia, but it was all Rome, so what did it matter? And, and uh, Paul's stay there was relatively brief. Uh, he had angered some dudes. Um, got, got himself into a little bit of trouble, got thrown into prison for a little bit, and then he got asked to leave town. It's a great story. Um, but, but we know that he loved these folks. He loved them dearly. Uh, they, they obviously made a great impression on him. And he's writing here to help this young church grow in its understanding of the gospel. And so uh, some of you, the ones who were here, will remember that the last time when we were in Philippians, we talked about how Paul is writing this letter from another prison, right? He had done some prison time in Philippi, did some prison time again somewhere else. Should give you some hope, right? So Paul was a, was, had done time, a bunch of it. And so he's probably in Rome, and he, and he was talking about how God is advancing the gospel, which is the central proclamation of Christianity. That God is actually advancing the gospel, not in spite of his circumstances, but because of them. You see the difference there? It's an important distinction. That God sovereignly ordered Paul's circumstances for that purpose. And now we get to hear how it is that Paul seems so free to declare that his circumstances seem to matter very little to him. So if you have your place in Philippians, our habit here is to stand as the the text is read before the sermon. So would you stand in honor of God's word? I'm going to be actually reading like the last phrase of verse 18 through verse 26 of Philippians chapter 1, right? This is God's word. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my salvation. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. And if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My, my desire is to depart, to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary in your account. 
Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. God's word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you, would you now just come and impose yourself upon us? Lord, I ask that you would, you are God of heaven and earth. Would you throw your weight around in this gym this morning? Would you work in our hearts? Because we are in here and for different reasons. Some of us are, are here and we're eager. Others of us are, are, are just worn out and tired and bored. We need you to come and to open our hearts and to work to make us new so that we might not only hear what you have to say, but to receive it and to do so with joy and to find hope. Lord, let Christ and his work come to the fore. Let the one who speaks fall to the wayside because Jesus, you alone hold the words of eternal life. So speak, your servants are listening. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Have a seat. So I'm going to take a risk this morning. And I'm going to start off, uh, and, and, and forgive me if I speak a little quickly. We're, <laughs> I've already blown it in terms of time. So, uh, but I'm going, to, I'm going to take a risk and start off with an essential point of biblical teaching. That, that is a risk because, see, some of, you, uh, some of you here who aren't Christians will kind of be tempted to, to tune me out. But here's my hook, okay? You don't have to believe the Bible to believe what I'm about to say. Okay? You, you can be ambivalent about what you think of the Bible, whether it's actually God's Word or something else. But what I'm about to sell you, which is actually a central component of Christianity, is actually something that you can believe whether or not you believe the Bible's true at all. My, my guess is actually you probably already believe this, regardless of your faith commitment. And it's simply this. We love us some us. Right? That we are, we are me-centered. Me-centered. That we're about me. We're about number one. You don't have to believe the Bible to believe that, right? I mean, we, we all see that. We're a me-centered people. Now, what is great about being a Christian is that we have a reason to believe that. We, have a, we, we understand why that is. Uh, and, and probably if you're not a Christian, you don't really. Because you probably make lots of resolutions all the time about thinking about others more. Doing more for others, etc., etc. And then you realize that you often think about others so that you won't be me-centered, which is really about you, and not about them, and then you scream or try harder or just give up, right? Now, Christians believe that we're me-centered because of sin. That little three-letter word we don't like to talk about, that what it does is it actually turns us in on ourselves, makes us about us. And frankly, that little idea about being turned in on ourselves is what makes this passage so hard to understand. Because basically, Paul says a couple of times in this passage, I don't matter. How does that work? How do you get there? How do you get to a point where you're like, yeah, me, I don't know. I don't, my desires, I don't It doesn't matter. Whatever. What does that? How do you face what Paul is facing, which is prison, right? Suffering. How do you face what he's facing with such consistent self-forgetfulness? Well, here's a preview. Obviously, we're going to talk about that, but let me give you a preview in a nugget. Uh, it's because something happened in Paul that removed himself from the center of his life and put someone else there. Put Jesus there. We'll talk about that. But we're going to talk about this text in three ways, okay? So there's an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful to you. If, if, that's, if, if that's helpful, it's a little white piece of paper. If not, just leave it there. But we're going to talk about a situational necessity... We're going to talk about a psychological tension. 
And then finally, we're going to talk, talk about a startling center. Okay? Situational necessity, psychological tension, and a startling center. Let's start with the situation. Now, like I, I began reading, I know our text says it's from 19 to 26. I read from the tail end of 18. That's because most of our Bibles include the tail end of verse 18 in this opening paragraph, right? Because Paul says, and I will rejoice. He, at the end he said, uh, that, that because Christ is proclaimed in that I rejoice. And he says, and I will, I will do so all the more. Because I know that through your prayers and the support of the Spirit, this will result in my salvation. Now, stop there, because let me remind us what the this is, right? Do you get that? He, he says, he's, this will result in my, salva- or in my salvation. Here's the this. Paul is in prison. He's in a Roman prison, right? So that's not like your little eight by eight with three squares a day and time in the exercise room. He's in a Roman prison, which probably means either stocks or some kind of place in which he's held in a dank, dark place where, where they, there was no social services. Like, no one's providing him food. If he's going to get eat, it's because somebody from outside is going to bring him food. He's not exactly treated well by guards. Right? There are no justice rights. This is the Roman Empire. He's in a Roman prison. His life's goal is to see new disciples of Jesus made, new churches started throughout the Mediterranean world, and he's stuck in a Roman prison. And so just being stuck there would be bad enough until you remember, like I just said, that Roman prisons weren't exactly happy places. And then you add to that the fact that everyone who had been around him, and Paul did tend to, though he always caused a fuss wherever he went, he did tend to garner some followers, some people would like want to attach themselves to him. Uh, and and what, we're, what we know about his time in this prison is that everyone else besides one dude by the name of Timothy has left him, abandoned him. He's alone. He's all alone. And so all these things add up to a pretty miserable time in Paul's life. That, that is the this that he's talking about. Now, notice what he says. Through your prayers and the support of the Spirit of Christ, this will result in my salvation. Now, this is pretty big, so listen close. Because this is, again, not like we talked about last time we were Philippians. This is not, well, God will work in and through around these kind of circumstances Paul is willing to rejoice because of the fervent belief that this time of suffering is going to result in his salvation. Now, some of your translations say deliverance, but the word in the original is salvation. Okay? It means he thinks this is actually going to be what God is using to save him. Now, he continues. As it is my eager expectation and hope, I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether in life or in death. And that sounds crazy, right? No, it does. Like, that's not rhetorical. Like, it does. It sounds crazy. Uh, let, let's be honest. Because this is where we see that Paul isn't saying deliverance in the sense of being released. He's saying that these circumstances, these painful and terrible circumstances, are working for his salvation such that Christ will be honored whether he lives or he dies. Now the reason for that comes in the central affirmation. Look down at verse 21. Paul says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now to get this, we need to, get, to kind of take one phrase at a time. What does it mean that to live is Christ? Okay. Remember I said a second ago that something had happened in Paul's life that removed him from the center of his life and put Jesus there? That's what he means. That... 
he says this kind of thing a bunch in his letters. In, in his letter to the Galatian churches, he says, um, I have been crucified with Christ. Right? He says this in chapter 2. It's like my, one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. It is Christ that lives in me. Now here's the crazy thing. What Paul is saying, even though he says to me, to me, to live is Christ. This isn't meant to be a Paul thing that he's talking about. This is meant to be a Christian thing. Because you see, the, some of you will remember this. Others of you, maybe it's new. But the story of the Bible is that you and I were not made for ourselves. That we were ma- weren't made for, for autonomy. Autonomy is a very modern, uh, very Western, very American idea. It's just not very biblical. Right? We, we were made for God. We were made for a dependent relationship with Him. And the Bible talks about in, t- in terms of love. That we were made um, to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Which is not a way of dividing up the human person. Like, well, I love God with my heart, but not my mind. Right? I'm working on loving God with my strength. It, it means the whole of who you are. Okay? That we were made to love God with all that we are. But of course, we started this whole talk by talking about the fact that we're me-centered. right? So... so what, what happened? Well, the Bible says that this happened, this me-centeredness, even though we were made to center our lives on the Lord, that this me-centeredness happened because we betrayed God. We turned away from Him. We, what the Bible calls sin. We, we, we relationally betrayed Him. But, and, and then now, by nature, all of us are alienated from Him. Now, that looks really different in everyone's life, but the result is the same. Right? What I mean is, like, it looks different for us. And we'll get into some of the differences later. But, like, the way that my independence, my betrayal of God, my autonomy from Him looks is going to look different from yours because we're just, we got different makeups, different ways of looking at the world, different value systems. But here's what it results in when you betray someone, that brings guilt, right? And you know that because you've betrayed people. People have betrayed you. You know how that works. It brings guilt. We all know that. Well, the guilt that betraying God brings is this thing called hell. It is bearing the weight of our betrayal of God for eternity. But God wanted relationship with us, so he came to rescue us, and that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to live that life of full devotion, fully loving God with all of his being that we can't. And we can't do it because we are, by nature, turned away from him. But then he dies to bear our guilt, to bear our hell. And so coming to Jesus by faith is basically reordering what we love. It is placing God back in the center of our lives. And if that has happened, then our lives are to be centered on Christ and not ourselves. See how it's a Christian thing and not a Paul thing? It's it's to be centered on His glory, not ours. To be centered on serving Him and not Him serving us. And so Paul is saying, look, so long as I am alive, I am Christ's. I have Him and nothing else matters. For to me, to live is Christ. If I die, he says, then it's gain. So let's get to that. Paul will deal this, with this in the next couple of verses. But needless to say, that Christians believe... Uh, stay with me a minute. Let me, let me help you along. Christians believe that when we die as Christians, uh, our bodies go to the ground and our souls go immediately to the presence of God to await the resurrection. And so here and now, don't check out on me, stay with me. Here and now, okay, Jesus is present with us by his spirit. But then when that happens, his presence will be unmediated. And in addition to that, we no longer sin. We no longer sin. We're not, we're not sinning anymore. 
And this is why Paul says death is gain. It isn't because he has a death wish. It's not because he's like, man, I can't stand the world. I just want to get out of it. He's saying it's gain because he understands that death is a temporary bus stop where we wait for the resurrection of our bodies. That day when Jesus will set all things right. And in that, we will both be with Jesus and not sin anymore. Imagine that. Now, let me sum this up before we move on so we can track the train of thought. What Paul is not saying is that he can accomplish his own salvation through a hard life. <laughs> like, because my life is hard, God, it's kind of appeasing God, right? That is silly. What, what Paul is saying is that these circumstances... Uh, now, listen to me, because I know this is really counterintuitive. That these circumstances, jail, suffering, abandonment... That these, these sufferings are not a sign that God has forsaken him. That they are instead God's working to bring glory to Christ by having him boldly proclaim his faith in Jesus no matter what he's going through. He will hold on to Jesus no matter what. Now, that leads us to conflicted desires. Look down at verses 22 and 23. Paul says, I know that living, that staying, that being here... Being in the flesh, some of your Bibles say, it's a little antiquated, but it still means the same thing. That living will mean fruitful labor, labor for me, but I don't know what to choose. I'm in tension about the two. I strongly desire to, be, to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Now stop there, because this is really important for us, so listen close. Paul is admitting something that we need to hear. He is conflicted. He's conflicted, which is important because we think that if you're spiritual, you shouldn't have such conflicts of, of conscience, of soul, of heart. That, that being spiritual means you're kind of singularly focused. Paul has desires that are in conflict. Now, you and I may not be able to relate to the exact desires that are in conflict because they seem weird to us. But the fact that he has them is important. Because what he's saying is, look, I know that if I don't die, I'm going to have fruitful labor. But being with Jesus is my desire. And that word desire in the original, it, it, desire isn't like, um, man, I really want a pizza tonight while I'm watching the Super Bowl. Like, that's not what we're talking about. It's the same word that's used for passion. At times, it's used negatively to talk about uh, lusts, like, like fervently life-held, must-have type things. Okay? His desire, his passion is to be with Jesus. Now, the fact that he has one, of, has one of these driving passions isn't strange to us. What is strange is that there is a tension, right? Because what we've been taught is that to, to deny such intense driving passions is to live inauthentic lives. To, to deny such things is to psychologically repress who we are, that we should never say no to our desires. And how much more so if you're a Christian and can make it sound pious like Paul just did? Right? Paul is in tension. He wants to be with his Lord. He wants to be with the one who loved him and gave himself for him. But there's this little thing still out there, this fruitful labor. Being with Jesus is better for him. But there's this fruitful labor. Now, before I move to see what he decides, I need to point out something. When Paul says better by far, it's going to be hard, so hold on. When he says that 
Dying to be with Jesus is better by far. He does not mean objectively. In other words, what he does not mean is, earth stinks, heaven is great, let's get there and to hell with this whole place. Literally. That's not what he's saying. Okay? What he is saying is that being with Christ is better for him. He's in jail, right? He's in jail. He's like, dude, if I could get away from all this brokenness and get to be with Jesus, it would be awesome. I'd be good. And that's important for us to grasp because of the decision he makes. Look down at verse 24. Paul says this. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. And so convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. Okay? Did you see what Paul just said? What he just said is, it is better for me to go be with Jesus. It's better for you if I stay, and so therefore, I am compelled to stay. Now again, in our day, we would say that this guy is totally being inauthentic. He's repressing his desires. He's being controlled by other people and their desires, their wants for him, yada, yada, yada. That is because we are me-centered. And when I say me-centered, I don't just mean... Like me individually, I am, by the way. But I don't, I don't just mean me, I mean like us. Our whole culture has now made it a, a prime value to be such. So let me make sense of this. Remember when I said that Christianity, that Christians believe, uh, because the Bible teaches, that we were made to love God. The other side of that is not only were we made to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, we were also made to love our Neighbor as ourselves. In other words, to love others. What that means to love others is to seek their flourishing. In other words, we were made, humans were made, believe it or not, I know this is hard to believe, humans were made to be outwardly focused, to be focused on others. It is sin that turns us in on ourselves. It is sin that makes us look out for number one. And so when Jesus comes into our lives, though, and he rescues us from our sin, he he reconciles us to God, it's not just a a fictional thing. He actually reorients our lives. He, He turns us back out, right side out. And this is why Paul concludes what he does. Because he's basically like, look, it will be better for you and result in giving glory to Christ if I will return to you. And so that's what I'm going to do. If it were just me, I'd rather go be with Jesus. I'd rather go do that. But it's going to be better for you. It's going to give him more glory if I come back. Therefore, that is what I am about. Paul is making decisions Christianly. He's thinking through what it would look like to love God and to love his neighbor. And so because of those loves, it's compelling him to do something. What he is not thinking is, how will this best suit Me. How will this fit into my schedule? How will this accomplish my goals, help my brand, further my ministry, accomplish my life plan, whatever? He settles on what he does because of God and others. Now, let's look at a startling center because we need to draw out some things to take home with us. First, let's talk about arranged loves. It seems entirely unrealistic to us that Paul acts the way he does, right? And it seems like that because so much of our world tells us that it is about us. And for some of us, it's really obvious that it's about us. We're obsessed with ourselves. We're obsessed with our image. Obsessed with our pleasure. Obsessed with our safety. Obsessed maybe, if you're a parent, with 
our children, which really means I'm obsessed with my image through my children. How my children reflect me to their teachers, neighborhoods, fill in the blank. Obsessed with our future. So that's obvious, right? Others of us, though, it's not so obvious. Because you see, we can pretty up our self-centeredness so that no one sees it. Because maybe some of us, we constantly capitulate to others. Constantly. We are people pleasers. We, we, we do everything we do to keep other people happy. Maybe, we're, maybe, maybe it's not other people. Maybe we're just like uber-religiously busy people. Right? Meaning we have a constant public face of private devotion. If that is you, I'm about to tell your secret. Sorry. It really isn't about others, is it? I know you want it to look like it is, but it's really not. Because, you see, if you're a people pleaser, it's probably because you want their approval, their affirmation, their absolution of your feelings of guilt. Or maybe you're just so conflict-averse, you'd rather roll over and die than to actually challenge someone. Let me, let me ask you something. Have you ever considered that the most loving thing you can ever say to someone oftentimes is, no? Just food for thought. If you're exhausted because of religious work, can I ask you, who are you doing it for? Is it God? Really? Or, or is it so that God will be nice to you? You work so hard for him, there's no way he could ever do wrong to you. He'll he'll give you everything you want if you work really hard for him, right? He's a Coke machine. Put in your quarters, press your button, get your blessing. Do you think that the more work you do for God, the more you can get from God? Or are you hoping that your devotion will score points with you uh, in your community? Do, Do you see how deceptive our hearts can be? Because we go into those circumstances thinking, I'm all about other people, when really we're all about what other people can give to us if we give to them enough. Serving others isn't bad until it is. Serving the Lord isn't bad until it is. When we serve others and even serve the Lord to get something from them, we have secretly made it about us and showed that we are broken And cannot fix ourselves. But listen to me. Because this is where the gospel comes in. God isn't asking you to fix yourself. He's not asking you to do that. The only way you can stop looking out for yourself. The only way you can stop looking out for yourself. Is if you are convinced that someone else has ultimately looked out for you. The only way you can stop looking out for number one. Is if someone else has seen you as number one and cared for you. The only way you can fully love God and others is if you believe that someone has fully loved you. See, if you embrace the fact that Jesus has done all that there is to flourish you, all that there is, you no longer have to look out for yourself. If you believe that the love that you were made for has been freely given to you in Jesus, which means freely given. You didn't do anything to get it. Ultimately, you can't do anything to lose it. Then, then you can freely love others without regard to yourself. But so long as you try and work it up, the dirty little secret is it will always be about you. Always. 
Last thing we need to talk about is the place of pain. Uh, Let me warn you, this is about to get uncomfortable. Many of you are going to get angry at me, but I love you, and so I'm willing to risk that. Okay? Paul is telling us that he sees his struggle. He sees uh, his his painful time in prison as resulting in his salvation. So let me ask you something. Are you open to the possibility, just the possibility, not saying for certain, are you open to the possibility that the pain you are feeling right now is necessary for your salvation? Look, I know that makes you mad to even hear that, but I need you to stick with me for a second. Because you see, we've been conditioned to see pain as always bad. But what if what we are going through, what, just what if, right? You don't have to believe a lick of what I'm saying. Let's just entertain the possibility. What if all of that pain is because God is working to strip away the false loves that we cling to? The false loves that we've placed in, in that place that he's supposed to have. And, we're, and you, right now you're like, Rick, you don't know my situation. You're right, I don't, I don't know your situation. But here's what I do know. Change in us doesn't happen without pain. It doesn't. I know we want it to, but it never does. I say this all the time, okay? I say this all the time. Some of you have heard this ad nauseum. Forgive me, you're going to hear it one more time. You and I will never change until the pain of staying the same is worse than the pain of change. We will never change until the pain of staying the same is worse than the pain of change. The same is true of all of us. The same is certainly true of me. Sometimes that that pain is associated with my uh, self-image, admitting that my image of myself was just a cherished illusion and I need to admit my brokenness to the Lord and others, right? That's often the pain that comes that drives us to Jesus in the first place. Because we realize I'm not who I thought I was and I can never be. And so it becomes worth it to trust someone who says, you don't have to be, I just love you and want you. Others of us, you know, that pain is the, the relational pain that forces uh, us to confront someone and how they're sinning. But look, look, there's two dangers in this though. The first is trying to be so pious that we pretend that that pain isn't really painful. And we go, yeah, 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 I know this, but you know what? Jesus is better by far, and I'm willing to do it. It's not really that bad. It is that bad. It is really that bad. Pain is real. It hurts to reorder our loves. It hurts. It hurts to abandon our addictions, whether that is an addiction to chemicals, to pornography, to work, an addiction to being the good girl, uh, or, or keeping other people happy. It hurts because that's how we've dealt with our brokenness. That's how the world has been right for us. And all of a sudden we're being asked to, no, you don't need that anymore. Are you kidding me? To pretend that it doesn't hurt is to cheapen the work of Jesus by saying that it's, our brokenness isn't that bad. I can give it up easy. But listen to me. Whether we're talking about chemicals or porn or work or being a good girl or having a great image or or keeping other people happy, these things 
cannot, cannot deal with your brokenness, your guilt, your feelings of loneliness. At best, at best, they distract you for a time. Jesus can restore you, but I have to tell you something. You've got to let go of other things. You can't hold on to, to, to those things and say, well, I, I, I can get Jesus too. My pinky almost, oh, lost him again. Like, you can't do it. You can't do it. The second danger that I want to hit really quickly as we wrap up is the danger of trying to deal with it alone. This is really hard to believe, especially for, for those of us who, who deal with a lot of shame. But, but letting others into your pain is, is, is a loving thing. Letting others come alongside you in your hurting is a loving thing. That's what Paul's doing here. He let the Philippians know the suffering that he was going through. And what did they do? They were able to help him bear it. They were able to love him. He gave them an opening to love, and they did. Suffering alone ultimately becomes all about you again. Friends, let the Lord use others, their prayers, the support of the Spirit of God in the community of God, directing you back to the gospel. So that in the midst of it, in the midst of it, in the midst of that stuff that you're going through right now, which is so hard, you can even say to me, to live as Christ. And to die is gain. Would you pray with me? Father, in the midst of all of this, we need the gospel. We need you. And so we ask that you would come and minister the gospel to our hearts no matter where we are. Whether we've been Christians for as long as we can remember. Or we don't know. We've never. This is the first time we've even been in a church. We pray that you would meet us where we are and, and gather us to yourself. Grow us deeper in our understanding of what Christ has done and all that we can have because of him. I pray that you would change us. If we're stuck in something this morning, I pray for my friends, I pray for myself. If we're stuck in something, maybe we can't even see it. I pray you would make the pain of staying the same so bad we can't do it anymore. Because you want more for us and I want more for my friends. And Lord, in the midst of that, would you deal with us gently and minister the balm of Christ to us. We ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.